0: CFC kids, fifth grade and, and under. Uh, we can be mindful of them, prayerful for them and for the volunteers that are teaching them. Uh, before we dive into the message this morning, I want to ask a request that I don't normally do this. I don't think I've ever done this, but um, as I look ahead at the preaching calendar, um, it, I, I, you know, prayerfully try to discern which books to preach through and once in a while, we'll do something topical in the middle, like we've done things on certain topics before, in between series, or maybe pause a series, address an important topic, and then keep going. And I'd like to hear from you. Are there certain topics that you feel like we haven't visited in a long time? Or maybe you've been here a long time, and you're like, I don't think Pastor Lucas has preached on this ever, you know? It could be a, a cultural, political-type topic, and you want to know what the Bible has to say about it. Hopefully, if you've been around here long enough, you know I'm not afraid to... To hit an issue. Um, Or it could be something doctrinal. Uh, Recently uh, through the summer I met with uh, the college and career age uh, folks in our church and we started that off by, I pass out index cards, tell me what you want to talk about. There were so many topics there. I'm like, I wonder if everybody else in the church has certain topics burning in their minds and in their hearts and they'd love to hear addressed. Uh, I can't guarantee I'll work it into the sermon calendar, but I will try to Um, so here's, here's how you might do it. Okay. We have uh, a box in the back for prayer requests. Let's use that. There's a box back there, uh, in the corner and you can use the comment card, that green card that's in front of you in the seat pocket. Or if there's not one of those, use the back of a offering envelope. I think we still have those (laughs) in there. Um, or tear out a piece of your journal, a post-it note. It doesn't really matter. Just write something down You don't have to put your name or who it's from. You can if you want me to reach out to you and ask you for more on that. But it could be anonymous. It doesn't matter. But write down a topic, a theme, maybe a scripture passage that you're like, I wonder what this really means. And maybe we could do that as well. Okay. So uh, I'll extend this invitation over the next couple of weeks. um, And hopefully at the end of the service, remind you to go ahead and put that in there. So something might pop in your head in the middle of the sermon. That's okay. Um, Write it down. Fold it. And then when you're on your way out, drop it in the box. We'll collect those, and I'll see what I can do about prayerfully working that into the sermon calendar over the next several months. Uh, But let's pray as we get into God's Word this morning. Father, we do pray for our children. We pray that their uh, tender hearts would be uh, receptive soil even now to your Word taught. Uh, We pray for our volunteers, that they would be clear and uh, love on those children, Father, and not be too anxious about the perfect delivery of the material, uh, but prayerful that, uh, that you would do your work in, in those kids' minds and hearts, Father. And we pray the same for ourselves as we dive into Scripture. Uh, you would use it, Father, to fortify us, strengthen us, Lord. We need it for the journey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Proverbs, as you've seen... It's pretty broad, you know, uh, just general wisdom that God provides his people to live life in the real world. But there are certain points throughout Proverbs, especially in the middle chapters, that get really specific. It's going to talk to you about how to use your money. It's going to talk to you about friendships. It's going to talk to you about the importance of community, uh, all kinds of specific things in your life. Um, and one of those themes that gets hit hard is the arena of sexuality, the area of what is sexually immoral, to stay away from it, um, that, that particular theme. And uh, as I was talking with my wife earlier, she was, uh, her, especially with her experience on the school board in our local school district here in Itasca, uh, as we as we pay attention to what our schools are doing with regard to sex education it is not just sex education if you even want to call that anymore but sexual uh, sex indoctrination your kids will learn it you can not talk about it in the house make it the taboo topic well then they'll learn it somewhere else we don't want to be that kind of church Because the Bible is not that kind of word. The Bible talks about it. And one of the advantages of preaching through a book is I don't get to skip over the stuff that's uncomfortable. It's right there. And it's right there repeatedly. Statistically speaking, when we think about the ruin and disaster that comes on the heels of giving into the temptation of sexual immorality, I'm either speaking to someone today who is maybe still reeling from that disaster in your own past or you're facing that temptation now and if you don't belong to one of those two groups you belong to the third group it's coming that temptation is coming oftentimes it's right at the point where you're like I'm really strong the marriage is really great I've turned down the temptation numerous times before I'm good That could be when you're at your weakest uh, when you listen to stories of people who have fallen strayed, buying into the lie that it's not that big of a deal, and it turns out to be a really, a really big deal. So a couple points of clarification, okay? Uh, If you're single and not married, I don't want you to go, well, I guess this sermon's not for me, and just kind of doodle for the next 30 minutes. I want you to tune in because it's not for just singles. It might be especially for singles, Because we're not just talking about cheating on your spouse, we're talking about sexual immorality. Sexuality outside the confines of covenant marriage. So if you're single, of course that's for you. Of course it's for you. If you're married, of course it's for you. And what you're going to see in the author of Proverbs, of course, this is sort of taking on the mode of a father speaking to his son and preparing his son to live out there in the world. So he's warning him of an adulteress. I don't want you to think this is only a problem with dudes. And there's a bunch of lurking women out there as, as predators, right? I think statistically speaking, we could probably reverse that and go, yeah, guys are oftentimes the predators, and women are the ones. So, could you say, my daughter, listen to my voice? Yes, this is this is something that's applicable, regardless whether you're a man or a woman, or whether the point of temptation is a man or a woman. The point of it is fidelity with regard to sexuality. So I want you to join me in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. If you crack your Bible open pretty much in the middle, you land somewhere in the Psalms, probably. You might land directly in the Proverbs, but Proverbs are right after Psalms. And we're in chapter 5. And here's what we learn right off the top. Giving in, giving in to a forbidden relationship will lead to deep regret. Giving into a forbidden relationship will lead to deep regret. We're going to read the first 14 verses straight. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength. And your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. As we dive in, I remind you, the person who says, well, that's not me, usually is the person that ends up being that, being embroiled in this. So he's arresting the attention of his son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. That's been broadly the theme throughout Proverbs, but now he's going to make it specifically about this one particular issue. And it's not like this was a particular issue in ancient times, but today it's hard to understand. It's more in your face today than ever before. And this person's day, you had to almost go looking for it. Now it comes and finds you on your screen. It comes and finds you on your phone. It comes and finds you in your mail. It comes and finds you at the office. It comes and finds you on that business trip. It comes and finds you uh, in that empty seat next to you on the airplane. All over. Be attentive to the wisdom that I'm giving you. Incline your ear to my understanding. So that this mess doesn't happen to you. He says that you need to keep discretion. And when we think of discretion, that usually means how you use your mouth. It does mean that here, but then he sexualizes it, right? That your lips may guard knowledge. And then in verse 3, it takes a turn. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. It could mean that she's dripping honey because her talk is sweet. But it probably means her lips are sweet. And this seems like a tasty proposition to you. And her speech is smoother than oil. Really, speech there is palate. It's it's the physical. It's very physical. And it seems tasty. It seems sweet. It seems smooth. It seems beautiful. Enjoyable. But man, it turns bitter fast. Verse 4 But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. You're going to choke on this, you're going to get cut by this. She is sharp as a two edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. That could be literal. Adultery, sexual immorality can end your life. There are many reasons why that could be the case. A jealous husband, overall lack of health. We know of many diseases that are uh, rampant due to sexual immorality. But when you read through the Proverbs, death is is ruin and destruction in general. So that even if you're physically alive, your life is wasted away. And that ruin is the destruction that it speaks of. And this path will lead to ruin. It doesn't seem like it in the moment. It doesn't wear a sign that says, caution. This is the caution. And if you don't have this caution in your mind and in your heart, at that point, there is no caution because it looks right and it looks good and no one's looking around. That's the moment you've got to be prepared for. Everybody is faithful here on Sunday morning. It's when you're out there, it's when you're under the cover of dark, it's when you know how to f- cover your tracks, your internet footprint. That's the moment. It seems sweet, it seems harmless. It's not harmless, it's bitter, it is sharp. It'll cut you down to nothing. Interestingly, it says her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. And I, I just thought this, uh, you know, even as a, as a dad, looking at verse 6, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. I looked the commentaries for help there. I didn't get much. Here are a couple options. She doesn't know this is wrong. She doesn't know this is wrong. That's not how she was brought up. So here you have a woman on that option. Here you have a woman who, she's not like, I want to trap this dude. I want to ruin his life. To her, it's not ruin. She thinks it's great. Or, another option, she knows it's wrong. She just doesn't know that that immorality leads to death. What she's unaware of is not that it's wrong. What she's unaware of is, how bad it's going to get. Which one is it? And I, I think it's, hey, pick one. Because the point is, in that moment, you can't bank on her conscience. If you try to appeal to her conscience or his conscience, for you women, again, just reminding you that we're tracking with a father speaking to his son, but this is applicable to everybody. In that moment, you you won't be able to tell her, ah, but I have kids, I have a family. So do I. Are you happy? You know, in her mind, there's a completely different track of ethics that she's on or that he's on. So you can't bank on her knowledge in verse six. Whether or not she knows it, her paths still lead to death. So well, the reason why I think this is so interesting, we can imagine a, 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 a woman or a, a man who's a predator, stalking, keeps flirting, won't give it up, desires to ruin this marriage, maybe even wants to have you just out of spite to your spouse. She doesn't really want you. She just hates your wife. You know. Imagine somebody who's just kind of nasty. And We're like, yeah, I need to stay away from her. Well, what about the kind woman that speaks kind words to you? You just got out of an argument with your spouse. This person is building you up, edifying you. This person reads their Bible all the time. My spouse, I can't remember the last time my spouse read the Bible. Maybe this would be better. That's still this person. She or he is ignorant of how destructive this is. Don't lend yourself to their conscience. Your conscience has to be trained enough by Scripture to know the difference, to go, nope, that's the wrong path. What are you talking about? You're offending me. You think I was flirting? I'd rather risk offending you than try to go down that path. You see it as innocent and harmless. I know better. Why? Because Scripture says so. So he continues with the warning. He's letting you know that this is sharp, this is a two-edged sword, this is, this is bitter. This will lead to death. And here's how. I think it's kind of surprising because he, we think he's going to talk about because it will ruin your marriage, because you'll get some disease. But listen to where he actually goes with it. Verse 7 And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, far from him, far from that situation, and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. This is pause there a second. There are concepts here that we need to grapple with. And I think especially in our particular culture here in America, we don't think of honor as much as maybe other settings. What is honorable to do? That's dishonorable. We're so highly individualistic. We don't care about the family's honor, the the, the marriage's honor, the other person's honor. But when we look at it scripturally, honor is forefront. Lest you give your honor to others and your years often your best years, to those without mercy. You have people that stand outside of covenant with God. So when the passage says things like, you're going to end up giving what is honorable to what is dishonorable, and he describes what is dishonorable as people without mercy, and people that are foreigners, verse 10... Uh, you can skip down to verse 20 real quick. That word "adulteress" there, I believe, is foreigner again. So you've got this repeated theme of someone who's a foreigner, and the author is not going stay within your ethnicity because the person here is not a for- she's not a foreigner because of her race. She's a foreigner because she's outside of the covenant. So so how is is Moses able to marry someone who's not a Hebrew? Because she's in the faith. That's why. Understand? So when we think about what, what is the kind of person that I'm allowed to marry or what is the kind of person that will pull me out of what I'm supposed to be, someone outside of the faith. It doesn't matter how nice he is, how much money he makes, or how kind she is, or how she gets along. She plays the same board games as us. There's covenant and then outside the covenant. Now, in this case, you might have someone who seems like they're part of the covenant. But if they're trying to pull you out of your marriage, you really think they're in the covenant? So this is not about churchgoer. And as someone who meets a lot with other pastors, and we exchange war stories, most of these stories are, are not people in the community. Yeah, there's couple in the townhomes. <laughs> Started sleeping around. It was so crazy. We don't talk about people in the townhomes, In the church. In the church. You thought they were Christian. They stand up and sing when we say stand up and sing. But one or more of the people are not in the covenant and they draw you away. That is a foreigner. Now I'm not saying anyone who commits adultery is necessarily a foreigner, as if Christians can't make a mistake. What I'm saying is, we cannot be fooled by an exterior religiosity, that person can still be a foreigner. Pulling you away from your covenant housing. And you end up giving your honor, your strength to foreigners or strangers, verse 10. Same concept. Not strangers, like you didn't know the person, as if, oh, it's okay. We've been co workers for the last 10 years. She's not a stranger. Stranger to the covenant. And of course, covenant faithfulness is what the Proverbs are after overall. So you keep away from her. You keep away from him. Do not go near that house or that situation. Again, we don't want to read this like school children. Oh, it's, it's not her house. We're, we're at the park, mutual ground. Stay away. Stay away from the situation. That honor piece also speaks to your wealth of who you are. Think of verse 10, let strangers, you're letting strangers take fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At first I thought, man, if I were writing this, that's kind of the last place I would take. You're going to end up spilling out money. Your career is now going to be devoted to this. Your labors, your strength, your prime years of building your career and making money are going to go over to this stranger. And then immediately, two examples popped in my head, Immediately. We could probably think of more. You could probably think of your own. One is a historical example. I don't know why this popped in my head, but several years ago, because of the popularity of the Hamilton uh, production, I started reading Rob Chernow's book. I say started because it's 400 million pages long, and I'm still reading it. Alexander Hamilton began an affair with a woman who kept coming back. He wanted to cut it off, but he couldn't tell her no her husband would come around and ask for money with a underlying tone of, you enjoy my wife? You enjoy your political career? He wouldn't say it, but he'd come over and make it pretty clear, you need to give me this money. So he's paying him out. He's paying him out. Paying him out. And Alexander Hamilton is enslaved until he makes it public, and he's just, the way to cut it is, I'm going to ruin my political career and try to save it by writing this public announcement. In many ways, Alexander Hamilton was ruined by it. Certainly, he gave much of his honor and strength to this relationship that started out, in his mind, as just one time. I know someone close to me in my life, or was, who... Uh, Had lots of promise, lots of promise to make lots of money. Graduated college, accumulated degrees, uh, started killing it career-wise, making money. Married his high school sweetheart, they had a kid. Cheated on her with his secretary. Oops, she's pregnant. Leaves this marriage to go support her, and that woman gets the bulk of his wealth. Sure, he sends money over here, but they never live in the house, the kind of house that they live in. They never, this original wife is never able to take her son on the kind of vacations they go on. Not only does he pick up uh, this new wife and their new child, but also her original child, who is from the marriage that she left and that he broke up. Now he's got three kids, two women to look after. That original spouse doesn't get that big house, doesn't get the bulk of that money. His years, his prime years, and the bulk of his strength went to the new situation. Now the world will tell you that, that, you know, just be safe, be careful, no one's going to know. Trust God's wisdom. Trust God's wisdom. Many of you here have your own testimonies. Don't hold it to yourself, share it. Because our other guys, our other women need to hear that. They need to hear it. And if God has brought you out of it, don't be ashamed of being forgiven, but pass that wisdom on to others. There's plenty of stories we can all share, our own and others that are close to us, that speak to this destruction. And if our young people don't see it, it'll just feel like faraway wisdom. I regret that my family, uh, for the most part, has covered mistakes. Mistakes. And I find out later in life, and I'm like, I wish I knew that when I was younger. But it's the shame of it, the shame of it. They, it's hidden and stuffed away in closets, but then it's not used for instruction. Pull it out and use it for instruction. That doesn't make you, that doesn't identify you if you've been brought out of it through forgiveness more on that later. But we need to see how this actually takes place. Because when you're in that moment, you don't think this is, this is just Uh, not just a moment, this is going to be my honor, this is going to be my strength, this is going to be all my labors going to somebody else. And you will regret it, verse 11, at the end of your life you're groaning and when your flesh and body are consumed, you're in utter ruin and you look back and you go, man, I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. People around me told me don't do it. And I did it anyway. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, plural, not just the dad, Everyone around you that surrounds you with wisdom. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. Verse 13, and now I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Who knows about this? The whole assembly, the whole town, everybody they brings together. One commentator I was reading was don't think necessarily you know the temple, but the people that come around to adjudicate. The case, it's known, is at the brink of utter ruin, surrounded by people who see it, who witness it, who testify to it, and no doubt they can testify to verses 12 and 13 that this person was surrounded by wisdom, but neglected it, rejected it, and now they're in this mess. Do not wait until you're in the mess to learn the wisdom. Learn the wisdom, avoid the mess, is the lesson. Now, you might think, boy, this this is really hard. I'm surrounded by temptations. There are temptations everywhere. If only God provided something to help. Ding, ding, ding. It's called marriage. It's called marriage. Verse 15 and 16, check it out. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you with a delight at all times. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Embrace the bosom of an adulteress or foreigner. So here, the, the dad is telling the son, don't do this and don't do that, don't do this. But he doesn't want the son to take away from that You know, sexuality is what's wrong. The context is what's wrong. And there is a context to enjoy it, actually. And so the context of marriage, the covering, the covenant context of marriage, provides the appropriate context for three things. Check it out in these verses. Marriage provides the appropriate context for ownership. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, right? Rather than abroad, your own. And so there's this ownership in marriage. You are mine, I am yours. Glory in that. Glory in that. So marriage provides the appropriate context for this mutual, mutual ownership Maybe there's a better word than ownership, but I'm just trying to capitalize on your your own. She belongs to you and and he belongs to her. Marriage provides the appropriate context for privacy, 16 and 17. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Think of Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor. There's the honor theme again. Let marriage be held by honor in honor by all or among all, and let the bed be undefiled. This is a private thing. It should stay private. This is why, and I'm going to sneak this in here. Is it a hobby horse? Whatever you want to call it, I don't care. But be careful what you watch. If a dude climbed up on a tree and was watching someone they shouldn't be watching through a window, we'd be like, ugh. But if that person sold themselves to do it, and then you paid to stream it, and so you don't have to climb a tree, you just climb into your couch, and then you could do it. Leave that to a private bedroom. We shouldn't be watching other people do it. We shouldn't be witnessing other people do it. And other people shouldn't be witnessing us do it. Other people shouldn't be enjoying us in it. It's private. So, that's part of the protection right there. You drink water from your own system. That's your spouse. That's your spouse. You belong to each other. And because you belong to each other, you don't share it with anybody else. So marriage provides the appropriate context for ownership, the appropriate context for privacy. And some of us need to hear this, uh, the appropriate context for enjoyment. For enjoyment, 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. There's so much here. I don't want to turn this into a, a, a premarital seminar. We don't have the time, but I, I do think there are some important things to point out here. Uh, especially younger folks, you, you might enter into a marriage where sexuality has such a, horrible past for her That is hard for her to do this. Namely, enjoy sexuality the right way. It's so tainted with abuse that it's difficult to enjoy it the right way. So you need to be patient. My word to that person who finds it difficult to enjoy it is to Ask the Lord for the grace to grow into understanding the beauty of it so that you can enjoy it and not just use the past as an excuse to completely shut it down. This is marriage, and the covenant sign of the marriage is sexual intimacy. And it might take a while to get there. So some spouses have to be patient. Other spouses have to gracefully, prayerfully find their way to participate in this beautiful exchange. Because some of us grow up and we're just taught it's yucky, it's yucky, it's yucky, it's yucky. Oops, I'm married. What do I do now? It's not yucky. What's yucky is outside of the covenant of marriage. That's gross and indecent and terrible and perverse. But then within the covenant of marriage, it's beautiful. So some of us, what we need to do is lean into the beauty of the intimacy that's covered by marriage. I hope I've said it enough to just leave it there. Lean into that. And for many people, it's going to take some work to lean into that. Lean into it. But that provides the context. There is a context to being intoxicated, sexually speaking. But not with them, with her. Not with them, with him. Look at the contrast verse 19 to 20. You're intoxicated always in the love of your spouse. Why should you be intoxicated with the forbidden woman? That's a, that's a wrong kind of intoxication. This is a right kind of intoxication. Intoxification, whatever the word is, right? Intoxicated, completely taken by. Well, there's a wrong way and a right way, using the same word to show you the right context in verse 19, the wrong context in verse 20. Do it in this context in verse 19. Don't ever do it in the wrong context. Verse 20. Why would you do it in the wrong context when God has provided the right context? So real briefly by way of application so we can move along here. We understand that sexuality, intimacy in and of itself is not wrong or ugly. It's beautiful in the right context. Um, For those of you who are single, God might be calling you to single. This doesn't command that everyone be married. In some Christian circles, there is kind of a push because some singles feel left out in ministries and everyone always talks about marriage and everyone always, you know, talks about their kids and singles kind of feel left out. And there's this kind of push to kind of, I don't know, make them feel a little more central. And oftentimes what that does is kind of douse the beauty of marriage a little bit maybe only 3 of you know what I'm talking about I don't know but I think it's an important word marriage is beautiful and we shouldn't apologize about it if you're called to singleness that singleness that's on you I think that's rare and we don't want to be like oh sacrificing for somebody else living with somebody else ugh, I'm called to singleness that's not a call to singleness Marriage is beautiful, and often you need to be patient for it. Oftentimes our patience is just a guise for our being overly picky. But marriage is beautiful and it provide provides a kind of context that helps you not get embroiled in the mess of the first half of this chapter. Marriage isn't the only way to not get embroiled in that mess. You can be chaste and single but marriage provides a way for you to enjoy this in the appropriate context. I think that's clear. The other point that I want to make really quickly by way of application, it's not directly out of this verse, but I just think it's going to be helpful for you. Um, just a moment of candor, okay? How else do you preach this without being frank? I think there were many... Who struggle with this because they just don't have eyes for their wife anymore. How can I be intoxicated with my wife? I'm just not taken by her anymore. But this woman, (sighs) might I suggest that part of the problem is you have allowed your eyes to look and watch and see and undress over and over and over. And your image has become distorted of what is beautiful. What you look at is airbrushed and photoshopped. It's on a screen. It's directed. There's cinematography. There's lighting. There's smoke. Whatever they're doing to make it like, oh, this beautiful thing. And you come home and your wife is real, or you come home and your husband is real. He's losing some hair, lost the abs. My suggestion is to start at the beginning of the Proverbs and stop going to that house. Stop going to that website. Stop looking at people that you shouldn't be looking at and starve your eyes of that stuff. And as you do that, by God's grace, you'll have eyes for your spouse like you should. Try it. Take the wisdom of God and allow him to provide the grace you need to be faithful. Finally, the proverb closes with the real reason why we should do it. And the real reason why we should not give in to temptation toward lust, the real reason why we, shouldn't, uh, we, should, re- that we should resist lustful temptation aren't because it'll ruin your marriage although that's true aren't because it'll ruin your career or devote your labors to something else that also is often the case the real reason is it dishonors the Lord who watches and sees even if your spouse doesn't see it he sees it even if the people haven't found out yet God sees it. Even if your co-workers don't know about it, God knows about it. And that's what matters in the end. Remember David, when he pens Psalm 51 out after his whole ordeal with Bathsheba, and he says in verse 4, against you, Lord, have I sinned. Well, what are you talking about? You sinned against Bathsheba, you sinned against your, you know, Uriah the Hittite, you sinned against your family, you sinned against the kingdom, He's not denying that. Well, who's the primary audience? The person who's ultimately offended is God. And so he says in verse 21, be intoxicated the right way, not the wrong way. Why? Verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And what does he watch? When you step away from the path, he sees you get ensnared. Verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. God sees it. God watches, and our lives are lived before the eyes of the Lord, and that's why we do it rightly. That's why the author said the beginning of wisdom isn't understanding of the consequences of folly. Although the Proverbs give us a lot of consequence stuff. The beginning of wisdom is fear the Lord. Because if you don't fear the Lord, you'll make excuses for the consequences. But it's the Lord. It's the Lord that's central. So the biggest point of application here is not to make the center of your marriage your spouse. That won't work. But make the center of your marriage the Lord. Who's watching your marriage and watching your fidelity. Watching your home. Then the other things fall in place. He is your primary audience. All of your paths are before him. And he sees it when we step away. And he's made it such that we won't escape the consequences of our iniquities. It's, it, it's a snare, verse 22. Think of cords like a net trapping you, verse 22. All because of the fact that God is not just someone who watches, but someone who provides he provides you with what you need to avoid the snare. And it's right there, snuck into verse 23. Why did you die? Lack of discipline. Lack of discipline because you didn't know it. You, you, there was no discipline to be had. No lack of discipline because it was brought to you and you didn't want it. God provided discipline in the form of wisdom in verse 1. Wisdom, look at those words, understanding, discernment or discretion, knowledge, Verse 6, he provides a path of life. That's what she doesn't know, but you're supposed to know. God provides that path of life. He gives you that clear warning in 7 through 8. Don't do it because this is not going to go well for you. He gives you the warning in verses 12 to 13 to stay away, or you're going to regret it, lest this happen and lest that happen. And then in 15 to 20, he provides marriage. He provides a context for you. So God is hes not just watching from a distance like, go ahead. You're going to trip? You're going to trip? I don't want you to trip. I'm going to provide you with the wisdom to avoid it. So you go, whoa, that's a snare, and you step around it. You discerned it because you were trained in the discipline that God gives you. We think of discipline as punitive. I disciplined him because he didn't eat his veggies. That's a part of discipline. But when you do the positive things and you teach your kids how to do things, that's discipline too. You're, you're training them sometimes in negative ways, sometimes as punishment, correction, reproof, but oftentimes as warning, teaching them, if you touch the stove, that's going to hurt. You don't necessarily spank them in that moment. You're you're disciplining them by warning them what's going to happen. And so all of that is true. As you think of the Proverbs, all of the Bible, that is the discipline of the Lord in verse 23. And when you lack it, you will be trapped. But when you embrace it, you will avoid the traps. Here's the point: we need to resist. We should resist lustful temptation because it ruins us. Yes, but ultimately because it dishonors the Lord, who watches and provides. All of you know, I think, uh, the famous verse of John three sixteen. God demonstrated his love in a very particular way. How did he demonstrate that love? What particular way did he show his love? He did it so. Send his son, to give his son, so we can have eternal life. Now, what happens there is God's ultimate provision of wisdom. Because leading up to that, yes, you can get wisdom in terms of head knowledge, but we needed something, didn't we, to be empowered? I mean, the disciples, the disciples were charged to go preach. But you know what? Wait for the Holy Spirit, then go preach. Could they preach without the Holy Spirit? Yes, in their own strength. And this is a bit of a mystery because God's Holy Spirit was at work in Old Testament saints, of course, but there was something about the cross that helps us turn head knowledge into heart knowledge. understand? So God is not just providing rules but providing you with the grace to live into those rules when you don't want to, when you don't feel like it, when you're at your weakest. Christ steps in with his strength, right? So the cross is God's ultimate provision for this. And of course, the marriage that's provided in this passage, marriage points to Christ's relationship with the church, does it not? Ephesians 5 makes that abundantly clear. And what does Christ do with his bride? He nourishes her and feeds her and builds her up. So Jesus Christ dying on the cross applies forgiveness to you and empowers you. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. I want you to think of both of those things. Some of you here are only hearing guilt because you're a little bit farther down the path and you can attest to the destruction and the ruin maybe. And you might leave here like, I just wish I could take my life back. I wish I could go back. God's forgiveness is full. Christ's blood is poured out for many. And that many includes those of us who've already failed. Can marriages come back from adultery? In Christ, yeah. In Christ, yes. Yes. So the cross of Jesus Christ is God's ultimate provision to forgive us when we don't live into Proverbs 5 and to empower us to live into Proverbs 5. If we leave here going, okay, God, got it. I've got the information. Don't give in. Don't give in. On our own strength, we'll fail. But if we leave here going, God, I know you'll, you don't just watch. You provide me with what I need to be disciplined. You provide me with power and grace to live into these wise words that I need riveted in my heart, not just in my head. Communion is a time of acting that out as we eat that bread and drink that drink. It's like God's grace, we're ingesting it, right? Just like the calories (laughs) give you strength, you eat so that you can live, we drink of God's grace so we can live it out. So it covers us, it looks backwards, and we go, God covers sin, not by stuffing it in a closet, We name it and we bring it to him and he covers it in all of its ugliness and all of its waywardness. God's grace covers it when we repent and we place our faith in Christ not just to go, whew, wash my hands of that. Now I could go do whatever I want but to live into God's good discipline and grace. As we reflect on communion, we're thinking of his covering and we're thinking of his helping through the Holy Spirit as we leave here empowered by his grace. I'm going to pray and ask the elders and the worship team to come forward. Father, in the next few moments, as we think about your wonderful grace, your grace that covers, your mercy that forgives, whatever we've done, whatever we've been up to, to this moment, we pray you would accept our confession to you. Even now, as we confess with our hearts, we we pray that you would we know that you see it. We bring it before you and we, we ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us our debt, our trespass, our iniquity. Fully and wholly. We know that's only possible because Jesus Christ took the wrath due all of our sins, bore it on himself so that our sins are nailed to that cross and we can receive mercy and grace instead. Lord, as we enter this time, we, may we be mindful of that. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.